Let's pray together. Father, we come to your book, your word. As we open it, we ask you to open us. Would you dig out our ears, unplug them, give us the ears of disciples? Would you teach us to walk anew, to walk step by step, and to see your hand and your feet alongside every step that we take? For the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask it, and we pray in his glorious name. Amen. If you have been with us, whether listening in online or on Sunday morning, you know that we, uh, with a couple of side roads, have been looking at the chapters in Genesis in what is the unfolding of the generations of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the third patriarch. And this week we uh, move ahead from Genesis 38, where we were last week, just a bit of review. Genesis 38 uh, begins with Judah, uh, the fourth-born son through Leah of Jacob, uh, resisting his covenant responsibilities, uh, running away from his brothers, uh, running down to the Canaanites. Uh, and the first paragraph of that chapter uh, begins with his having three sons, uh, generations of Jacob, but not in the place and in the way that Jacob would have preferred as Judah had these sons. Two of the three are so resistant to God's purposes that God quickly takes them. Judah, through not simple circumstances, if you were here, you know that's an understatement, is deeply humbled and begins a slow pathway towards repentance. And we said last week that for a lot of people, they wonder how you can have Genesis 37, which ends with uh, Joseph being sold by the other brothers uh, into slavery and going down to Egypt. Uh, why this crazy chapter of Judah's going down to the Canaanites and having this unusual relationship with his daughter-in-law Tamar fits in. But chapter 38 ends with God's providing two sons for Judah. Remember, God took two of the first three sons. And so the chapter that we studied last week comes full circle with through Tamar, Judah not deserving it in the least, being given two new sons, Perez and Zerah. And by God's purposeful sovereignty, Judah's son Perez becomes father to Boaz, who marries Ruth. He becomes father of King David. And he becomes father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who by the Holy Spirit bore our Lord Jesus Christ. And so without our knowing a lot of details of what was going on in Joseph's mind, other than what the text tells us, or knowing how much Tamar knew of the covenant that she clung to fiercely, risking her life uh, to have the child of the biblical line of Jacob that by right was hers. But nevertheless, God is generous in ways that were undeserved to all. And great blessings come. Uh, as we've been singing about the Lord Jesus, I could not help but think, isn't that what God has done to us in Jesus? Uh, we get abundance far beyond anything we could ever think we could deserve. And in fact, uh, part of the process of growing as a Christian uh, is realizing that we could never deserve it. Uh, the big difference between mature Christians and immature Christians is that mature Christians know how bad they really are. Uh, it takes us a lifetime to figure out how weak and how running away from God we are in our nature without the grace of God coming out and grabbing us. So we see God's purposeful sovereignty, his providence clearly at work. I mentioned last week that 
that phrase, purposeful sovereignty, is from John Piper, uh, a good book that he wrote in 2020 called Providence. So what is providence? We haven't said much. I want to move just very quickly, uh, just jot down uh, um, the references. They're easy. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 27. Heidelberg 27, you can look it up online. The question is, what dost thou understand by the providence of God? The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. A down-to-earth, simple statement that speaks of the sovereignty, purposeful hand of God acting ongoingly in creation. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 18, asks, what are God's works of providence? What are God's works of providence? Question 18, Westminster Larger Catechism. God's works of providence are his most holy and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures. His most holy and powerful preserving and governing all of his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. We're quickly in danger when we read statements like that because part of our minds tends to run towards, well, if God is that in charge, then this is fatalism. You know, it's just fate. Uh, When your mind runs that way, just close your eyes, close your ears, and go, no, 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 no. That's not what it's about at all. If you think fatalism when you think the providence of God, uh, your God is too small. You're looking at God as if he is a finite creature, and that if someone could be so in charge as a finite creature that everything comes out to his glory, uh, then... He's just, you know, the worst of despots. The reality in Scripture, and Scripture is full of the mystery and the narrative. I loved Andrew Peterson's comment. Uh, uh, We learn by stories. That's why God gives us these stories in in Genesis, uh, that God's ways of working His will are so beyond us that without taking away from our, our humanity, He is still able to accomplish everything Uh, that he needs to accomplish. And that Mary was very willing to become the mother of God's son. And yet God was involved in that very willingness. And yet Mary was willing. She wasn't forced. We could go on and on and on. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. How can that be? Because he alone is God. Uh, One of the things that uh, we are blessed with in our Presbyterian and Reformed tradition is that when we're at our best, we always start with God. And and the danger of humanity is we like to start with us. Uh, There's something beautiful that points to God about our all wanting to have dreams, Disney World. (laughs) And and, and the wonderful songs that go into our ears about uh, the dreams that uh, the Disney community has created over the years. But the terrible thing about that dreaming is if it's just our dreams, everyone will, will ultimately crash because we're not smart enough, we're not wise enough. We can't work things together well enough, but they point us in the right direction to the fact that we are meant to dream. So the reality of God, his nature and his purposes is behind all things. Uh, Remember, Moses is given the book of Genesis during the Exodus to explain to the forming Israelite nation who they are, who God is, how they got to Egypt, and so very much more. And after seeing in Genesis 38 the generations of Jacob through Judah, in Genesis 39 the story shifts back to Joseph, Jacob's firstborn through Rachel, sent away by his brothers down to Egypt. Judah went down to Canaan. Joseph, against his will, went down 
to Egypt. So I want you to see this morning above everything else that sanctification is never a straight path. Oh, we wish it were, don't we? We wish we could look at our growth in Christ, uh, our being made more like Christ, uh, our being set apart and devoted, uh, made holy like Christ in our devotion, uh, was on a graph, just this line that just goes from the lower left up to the right. But uh, if you're honest, you know that's true if you've been a Christian very long. Uh, Lane Adams, who uh, was the first pastor of the Key Biscayne Presbyterian Church in Miami where I served as a, an associate, uh, wrote a, a book with some good thoughts in it, and one of the best thoughts is in the title. The title is, Why Is It Taking Me So Long to Get Better? Oh, I resonate, resonate with that title. But sanctification is never a straight path. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and you. I'm going to try to do the near impossible this morning, and if we don't make it, We'll come back to it wherever we stop uh, next week. But I want to walk you through, not read all of Genesis 39 through 44, but so as not to bog us down in this series, I want to summarize the narrative of what goes on in chapters 39 through 44 and help you tie it together so that you can see how it connects with your own experience. It'll help you to have a Bible in front of you, whether it's on your phone or uh, in a paper copy, we are blessed with many ways of uh, having the text before us. Section 1, Joseph. Let's look at how he goes from the pit uh, to becoming the proprietor of Potiphar's house uh, to becoming uh, the prison prince of Potiphar's prison. Uh, God is not confused, I'm saying, but we are, and our response is because we don't understand how big God really is, how in control he is, how he works through all kinds of things and people. We give inadequate responses and incomplete affirmations to him. So let's just look at the narrative in Genesis chapter 39. We'll read some sections and we'll skip other sections. Genesis 39.1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Note that phrase. You'll hear it again and again. The narrator is very upfront. God has not abandoned Joseph when he got sold into slavery. That's a good reminder when you're in hard times. God has not abandoned you no matter how you got there. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he had to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and attended him. And Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Uh, Everything was in charge uh, of this servant, this slave that had been in a pit and got taken down. uh, And now he's got uh, to Egypt and now he's got this incredible role being honored because of God's blessing uh, by Potiphar who's a significant individual before Pharaoh. Verse 6 in the middle. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. You know, why is that there? Because God put it there. Uh, He wants us to know that it's true and it's a phrase that uh, uses language that is spoken of very handsome men and very beautiful women in the scriptures. And one of the things about very handsome men and very beautiful women in the scriptures is sometimes that works for good and sometimes it causes them a lot of trouble. And sometimes they get a little stuck up about it. And there are some in the Talmud, the rabbinic commentaries on the scripture, uh, thinking that maybe Joseph uh, had this going to his head a little bit along with some of the dreams. Uh, He had a significant role. Verse 7, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. A lot of people read that line totally positively. I read that line and I think, if you were one of the other servants in that house, or even Potiphar's wife, and this slave is saying, uh, No one's more important in this house than I am except for Potiphar, uh, you might wonder a little bit about that. Uh, 
nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's good. Joseph's thinking straight. He's been taught the scriptures and the traditions by his father, and he's seeking to be faithful in that way. Verse 10, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Good move. Flee temptation. Uh, but garments cause a lot of trouble in this story, whether it's Joseph's bloody garment that deceives his father or whether it's the garment that gets left in Potiphar's hand. And so Potiphar's wife is uh, pretty shrewd, pretty smart. Uh, we won't read verses 13 through 19, but uh, she uses this garment to weave her narrative uh, for those who are in the household and ultimately for her husband when he gets home uh, to paint uh, Joseph in the darkest of ways. And so verse 20, And Joseph's master, when he hears what happened, took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. Whoa, he was in the pit. Now he's a slave, but a prominent slave in the household. And he's going to prison. But the scripture reminds us the Lord was with Joseph. If you end up in jail for the wrong reasons, remember that. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but we have brothers and sisters around the world right now who are in that kind of a place. And God can still be with them. One of the things I've seen in ministry over and over again, and I need to not go very far down this side road, uh, is people who think God can only use them if they get to be a part of the ministry that they want to be a part of, if they get to be in the geographical location where they want to be, if they get to marry the man or the woman uh, that uh, they've always wanted to marry, and somehow uh, they just can't really be blessed and can't really serve the Lord if that, all those things aren't true. I want to go like, what Bible have you been reading? The, the important thing is the presence of God, not where you're at and not controlling the circumstances. I could tell you sad story after sad story of believers, and many of them in full time uh, earning their living of the church service, who have gone off at an angle and messed some things up because they didn't understand that. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. When this incident happened, Potiphar found himself with a real dilemma when he came home and his wife tells him what she says that Joseph did. Potiphar is a man with multiple important networks and responsibilities. He has responsibilities to Pharaoh, he has this valuable servant, uh, Joseph, that he really doesn't want to lose because he's seen how valuable uh, he can be. He could have him executed. That's what could be called for if indeed uh, he had been unfaithful in this way with his wife. But Potiphar has also married a wife who's connected to a family. And for all we know, knowing the customs of the day, the very fact that Potiphar has this grand estate and all of these other servants may be because marrying his wife got him a dowry that included that estate. So if he decides not to believe his wife and to dishonor his wife and divorce her, he's got a lot to lose. But he's got a lot to lose if he loses Joseph as well. And so he's got a dilemma on his hands. We tend, I think, to read the Bible with such moralistic uh, eyes and ears that we immediately jump to what's right and what's wrong in one behavior here. But life is very complicated, isn't it? And how decisions get made and how they affect different people uh, in the spheres of responsibility we have uh, is not simple. Whether he trusts his wife or not, whether in 21st century terms he loves her or not, Potiphar has responsibilities to many people. So Potiphar makes an incredibly thoughtful cho choice. 
He keeps his wife and, as far as we know, doesn't dishonor her by calling out her deceit. Which, by the way, Potiphar may well know about. There are a lot of servants in this house. They're not all loyal to his wife. A lot of them know what's going on. And some of them want to be uh, kept uh, in the good with Potiphar, who's really in charge. And they let him know what's going on. They probably like Potiphar better than they like Joseph. Because Joseph uh, has incredible personal morality but he's not showing a lot of emotional intelligence yet in chapter 37 or chapter 39. It's beginning to grow and beginning to come, uh, but he is not there yet. So he doesn't, Potiphar doesn't execute Joseph, but he does punish him, him by sending him to prison, a place where Joseph can still be valuable to him, and Potiphar gets to keep his estate and his marriage intact. Pretty shrewd guy. Potiphar comes out looking pretty good in this text. I remind you, we are always part of a group, a family, a covenant community. Joseph is still learning how to get along in community. He's concerned with being right, a good thing, uh, but he's likely not only offended Potiphar's wife, but many of the fellow servants. And it doesn't help that in the eyes of some of them, he's just way too pretty, way too handsome for all the other authority and places of honor uh, that he deserves. He's in a dilemma. He's doing a lot of things right, but sometimes when we do too many things right, we get people mad at us. Uh, I, I almost want to weep about my high school years that were wonderful and awful. Awful. It sounds like I'm boasting. I'm not. I was just good at a lot of things, and I discovered way too late that if you're good at one or two things, you're a hero, but if you're good sort of good at a lot of things, you end up with a lot of people resenting you. I was not like Joseph in every way, but uh, I got into trouble like Joseph did because of some things in my experience that I look back and I go, I should have had a lot more wisdom. But guess what? Wisdom comes through life experience. By the way, fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Note the contrast between Judah and Joseph. Judah has no self-control. He sees the beautiful woman, he wants her, and he takes her as his wife, and he has these three kids, and we heard the rest of the story. Judah's having, I mean, Joseph is having all of these other difficulties, but he's got self-control in some really important areas. And he is blessed because of that discipline in his life. Sanctification is never a straight line path, but God is with him. Chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Oh, God's got a purpose in putting Joseph in prison. He goes from the pit to being proprietor of Potiphar's house, and now he's the prince in charge of the prison. And we've got two other prominent figures in Pharaoh's household, uh, the cupbearer and the baker. And, and those are very important roles, because if you're going to poison the Pharaoh, you poison him by what he drinks, or you poison him by what he eats. So these are really important guys. And they had been trustworthy, but something went wrong, and they're in jail. They continued for some time in custody. Joseph is there in charge of them. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his, mass, in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Uh, there's a turning point right there in this narrative. Did you notice how emotionally sensitive Joseph has become? He's in charge of taking care of these guys, and he's noticing their countenance. He's concerned about their feelings and their experience and what's going on. He's beginning to ask different kinds of questions, and I think it's a sign of maturity that we will see unfold in the coming chapters that are part of Joseph's growing up and becoming incredibly useful uh, to God. Uh, somebody has asked me uh, 
you know, what's one of the greatest characteristics you can have in choosing ruling elders to elect or pastors? And uh, I have said for decades now, I, I choose wisdom over doctrine. Now, doctrine is part of wisdom. But you can always teach someone more doctrine if they're teachable. But if someone doesn't have a nose and a heart for wisdom, if they don't know how to deal with people, if they don't know how to read countenances and care about what people are feeling and experience, a lot of knowledge can end up causing a lot of harm if there isn't the wisdom to go with it. And let me go ahead and give you one thing that I would ask you to pray for, for whoever the next senior pastor is to be here. And we'll say more about it in other settings. And that is that it be someone who's been hurt enough in ministry for it to really sting, but who's handled it well. Because those who have not been hurt enough and have always seen things go well are ripe for great difficulties and often are blinded by them. More another time. So Joseph tells these guys, uh, interpretations belong to God, tell me your dreams. And so they do. The vine, three branches, as soon as it budded, the blossoms shot forth, clusters ripened grapes. He took the grapes, pressed them, uh, the cupbearer, and he gave Pharaoh the drink. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. So Joseph sees an opportunity. God has given him an interpretation that the cupbearer is going to be raised up again to usefulness to Pharaoh. So he says, give Pharaoh the message, will you? The baker, uh, chief baker says, wow, he got a good answer to his interpretation of his dream. Let me ask him too. You can read the details, but uh, uh, while the interpretation sounds similar, uh, he gets lifted up before Pharaoh too, uh, but instead of being lifted up and put uh, by, uh, back in his place, uh, he's hung on a tree. We don't know exactly what that means. He could have been hung on a pole, on a stake. He could have been impaled. Uh, there were different ways that could have happened, uh, but... Pharaoh took his life. He was that upset with him. So Joseph, from pit to proprietor to prison prince, God's not confused. Secondly, Joseph, from prison prince to prince of Egypt. It's so fascinating in this text. Did you notice it? If you've been reading ahead in the text, then I would encourage you to do that. Uh, get this text, uh, these narratives into your head and your heart. Uh, that for Joseph to become the one who delivers all the people of Egypt and his own family and other nations from the famine, what has to happen? This cupbearer has got to remember him. Do you see how complicated providence is? Uh, when we think we can organize everything, God, even in this narrative, reminds us uh, that God moves lots of pieces and lots of people uh, to bring about the changes that are needed in our lives. If we think we can figure that out and make it all work, that if we just take a few steps and get all these pieces, uh, or if we get enough people praying that it's automatically going to happen this way, uh, I'd be careful uh, if you're thinking that way. Uh, seek wisdom. Seek the right pathway. But know God's providence. God's in charge of how things play out. From prison prince to Prince of Egypt, Genesis 41. After two whole years, whoa, 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 Joseph says. I helped you get back your position and it's two years have gone by. Joseph's probably saying, I really praise you, God, but your timing is not in, in much in my favor. And behold, there came up, Pharaoh dreamed, uh, and he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. And stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. Oh. And Pharaoh awoke. That'll wake you up. 
And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Two years have gone by, but all of a sudden, this dream from Pharaoh jars this self-involved cupbearer, and he says, wait a minute, Pharaoh, I've thought of something. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a captain, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dreams. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So they send for Joseph. They clean him up, get him out of his prison garb, his Hebrew gear, make him look uh, presentable to the Egyptian pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph answers, Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so Pharaoh repeats the dream. And in verse 25, Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what, is it, what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh starts wondering, where can we find this man in the providence of God? He realizes Joseph's already there. Joseph is the man. And so verse 41, he says to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, closed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain about his neck, made him ride in his second chariot. They called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. He said to him, I am Pharaoh, and without uh, your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. He's getting married into the most prominent, powerful family of Egypt. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of the king of Pharaoh. Verse 50, when the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And if you know the scripture, you know that at the end of the previous uh, chapter about Judah, we have uh, the carrying on of the lineage of what became the southern tribes, uh, the tribe of Judah. And here we now have the key tribes in the northern kingdom that will come, uh, that are coming through the Egyptians through this daughter of a priestess. Boy, God, your providence is really funny. You know, we want to keep things absolutely pure, and you show us how you will use our own sin to bring about what we really need to have God's plans carried out. Uh, we aren't in the hand of fickle cupbearers, but in the one whose hand turns the hearts and hands of cupbearers and kings. Um, Chrysostom, the early... Church father preacher said, As it was, however, the wise and creative Lord, who like a fine craftsman knew how long the gold should be kept in the fire and when it should be taken allowed, out, uh, allowed forgetfulness to affect the chief cupbearer for a period of two years. Um, 
Calvin interpreted Joseph's two years as a lesson, quote, that nothing is more improper than to prescribe the time in which God shall help us, since he purposefully for a long season keeps his own people in anxious suspense that by this very experiment they may truly know what it is to trust him. I don't like that statement by John Calvin. I wish he had not written it. But then there are a lot of things in the scripture I have to wish that God hadn't written. That it takes a while. Uh, when you pray for quick turnarounds on things uh, where we've been sowing for wi wild oats as a culture in America for a long time, when you pray for quick turnarounds, uh, you know, God's not always impressed when we sow wild oats and then pray for crop failures. Sometimes it's going to take a while. I'm, I'm not a prophet, the son of a prophet. I can't tell you what's going to happen. But I just remind you that do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Uh, for whatsoever men and nations sow, uh, they tend to reap. And God's mercy comes in the middle of that. And sometimes God's church can't really grow and prosper again until it decides to be God's church in the midst of the pressure. And to really learn to love in, in new ways and to, to build the bonds of fellowship across those lines. Okay, we may get there. I'm going to move really fast in point three. Joseph, Jacob, Judah, and you. That's really where we are in this story, isn't it? Joseph, Jacob, Judah, and you. Sanctification is never a street, straight path. Let me race you through these three chapters and make a couple of quick applications. When Jacob learned that there was a grain for sale in Egypt, Remember, Jacob and the other brothers are up there in Canaan, uh, up in the hill country of Israel uh, to uh, the east of Canaan. He says to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us that we may live and not die. So ten of the brothers go down uh, to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob won't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, through Rachel. What happened when Rachel was in childbirth with Benjamin, the youngest? She died. So not only is there this tie to Joseph who's disappeared and uh, Jacob thinks is dead, uh, but uh, Rachel died. So there is a bond uh, in his love for these two boys and his love for Rachel that uh, was disproportionate over his care for Leah. So uh, the famines in the land, Joseph's the governor, and they go down. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers, recognized them, but treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. This is 42.7. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers. They did not recognize him. And he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. They're going to bow down to me. And there's a part of Joseph that's wondering, maybe now's the time. I'm in charge of Egypt. I got the food. They're in Canaan. They're hungry. What's going to happen here? And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with the father, and one is no more. So he tells them to send one back. And let him bring the brother. And he is always testing them in these chapters. So he locks all of them up for three days. Why do you lock them up together, probably in the same room for three days? Who are they going to send? Uh, what's the pecking order? What's playing out? Uh, he is testing them. And on the third day, he says, do this uh, and you will live for I fear God. Now, there's an interesting statement from this Joseph. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Isn't it interesting? Joseph's testing them and all of a sudden they're crying out, not knowing that it's Joseph. This all came about because how we treated our dead brother Joseph. And Joseph's hearing this. Imagine the dynamic of what's going on. Reuben answers, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. 
They didn't know Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter. So Joseph orders uh, his servants to fill the bags with grain, replace every man's money in his sack, give them provisions for the journey. He's kind to them, load the donkeys, and off they go. And uh, all of a sudden they realize the money's been put back. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another. And they got in a fight. Now, if you're following on along in the text, the amazing thing is they didn't get in a fight. Their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? You see what's happening to this family that was splintered and walking away from God? All of a sudden, through all of these providential circumstances, they're beginning to turn back to God together. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago, if you really want to see what God is after here, he's after the covenant community behaving like the covenant community. Not fighting amongst itself. Not seeing who they can cast the blame on when difficult things happen. But how can they look at what God is allowing in their midst and trust God and move forward? When the father uh, sees all this money, uh, they're all afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Reuben says, Kill my sons if I don't bring him back to you. But Jacob will have none of it. Verse chapter 43. They're sent to buy food, and now Judah steps up. Uh, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, Benjamin, we'll go down and buy food. But if not, we won't go down. For the man said, You won't see my face unless my brother is with you. Judah says to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little one. I, ones, I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the, bear the blame forever. Does this sound like the Judah that was involved with Tamar? It doesn't, does it? Judah is now saying, let me be the stench of the family forever. Cut me out of my inheritance forever if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. So Jacob hears this, and he realizes this isn't the Judah I used to know. And here's what Jacob says. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother, Simeon, who was kept, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Did you hear that? Jacob, this crotchety patriarch who's been walking away from God, now says it's in God's hands and I've got to trust God. And if God bereaves me, then I'm bereaved and I will take it like Job from the hand of the Lord. So they go down, they got the money in their sacks, uh, they, they say to the steward what's going on and the steward of Joseph says, peace be to you, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And he gives Simeon back to them. They're going like, what is going on? They ought to be beating up on us, Joseph and his stewards. But we're getting grace after grace after grace. Uh, and when Joseph came home, they brought him into the house where the brothers are uh, to the present that they had with them. And they bowed down before him, the fulfillment of the dream. And he inquired, is your father well? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. And then he sees Benjamin, and he weeps and has to run out of the room because Benjamin is there. He washes his face, he goes back, and they sat before him. Egyptians didn't eat with the others, so Joseph is eating at one table. But guess what he does? He lines up all the brothers by their ages and, and birthrights and privilege, and the brothers are looking at, who did this seating arrangements? How does he know who's the oldest? Because they still don't know it's Joseph. And then he sends them out and he gives them their money back again to go take everything home. Except he does one thing. He takes his silver chalice and he tells his servant to put it in Benjamin's sack. And they get just a few miles down the road and he sends the steward after them. And he says, you stole the Pharaoh's number one man, Joseph's chalice. 
And, and they can't believe it that not any of them would do that. I've got to summarize. Look over on your own verses 18 and following in this chapter. Uh, this speech by Judah in 44, 18 and following is the longest speech in all of this narrative about Jacob and Joseph. And it tells you that this Judah, who was all concerned about himself, is now concerned about his aged father, Jacob, and his feelings. And Joseph's heart ends up breaking as he sees the humility of Judah that is there in that text. He is utterly amazed. Now, therefore, please, verse 33, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I want you to see as we bring this to a close. That these brothers and the father are not cardboard figures. They're not stylized characters in a story. They are real people going through real experiences. Crying out in agony being full of anger towards one another, having complex feelings and emotions that they're going through. And God's providence is able to use all of that, the fear, the anger, the levity, the weeping, uh, because God knows all of the details and he can still work his way. And the road is not easy. But if we will apply the wisdom and the teaching of the Lord Jesus that comes into our hearts as we know him and the word in the daily current circumstances, one step at a time, we can trust the Lord with the outcome. So my admonition to you and to me is focus on responding to the day. I'm not going to go into all the stuff I've been dealing with physically that has slowed me down and getting started here the way I want to. The elders know a lot of the details. Steve Weedmuller knows more than anybody probably. Uh, but I'm having to apply this stinking teaching. And I say stinking uh, every day and every night. Sometimes I just want to quit. Like, Lord, what is going on? Narrative sometimes the best way to tell it. A quick illustration and we're done. Madeline Canada is a wonderful young Christian sister writer. And she titles this short piece, No Such Thing as Too Hard Music. Think of the tune of this passage as music that God is playing out. All music is created equal. I remember my piano teacher telling me this after I informed her the piece she'd just assigned was too hard for me to sight read. She sat there, took a sip of her coffee, and bounced her baby on the knee before continuing you know how to read music, Madeline. Just play the notes that come next. In all honesty, I was a bit frustrated with her instructions, but I knew arguing with her wouldn't change a thing. I sucked in a deep breath, scrutinized the piece of music in front of me, and plunked a set of keys. Very slowly and with an unattractive, choppy style, I played through the entire piece. When I had finished, I sat back and looked at her, surprised to see pleasure on her teacher's face. Quote, you just proved there's no such thing as too hard music, Madeline. Some music might just take a little longer and require a little more effort on your part. But it's not too hard. Skipping ahead. A few years later, I was sitting in a booth across from one of my deacon's wives, I think probably a Baptist setting, think elders' wives. I had reached a situation in life that felt a bit like that piece of music, too hard. I asked if we could meet with her so we could talk about it, and maybe she'd have an easy answer to guide me down the right path. As I poured my heart out to her over waffle fries and lemonade, yes, it was Chick-fil-A, she listened quietly. When I had finally finished, she very gently said, I think you already know what to do, Madeline. I just think you don't want to do it. I didn't like it, not 
in the least. But she was right. It wasn't that the music was too hard to figure out, and it wasn't that the situation was really all that hard to know how to handle. The truth in both situations was that I didn't want to give all that it would require of me. Apparently, walking in obedience to Christ is quite a bit like playing the piano. We play the notes choppy when we forbear with those that are irritating the spit out of us. We don't have the melodic line in uh, serious flow when we forgive those that aren't very forgivable. It doesn't sound pretty at first when others are trying to blame someone and you think, yeah, I could get into that. If we blame them, it makes this whole situation a lot serious. Uh, a lot more simple. But if you apply the fruit of the Spirit and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, one relationship at a time. If you go to the Lord's Prayer, which has right in the middle of it, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And by the way, I wonder why the church left out of the prayer that after the prayer and the Gospels, uh, Jesus repeats it again. If you don't forgive, I'm not going to forgive you. And I think what he's saying is if you're really mine and my life and my spirit is flowing in you, uh, it'll be hard and you won't want to play those next chords on the sheet music. But I'm just going to wait until you play them. Because that's the music and the tune that the church has to play. Because when the world... Here is the church playing that music and says, wow, that's really hard music. They couldn't be doing that unless they'd been hanging out with Jesus. And people start believing we're something other than a human institution. And pretty soon they're going to fall, some of them, in love with Jesus.